Kedabotai, we've gathered here now to finish our study of this most critical pasuk in Torah itself. We had studied the pasuk of Zenon Elohim, Rashid Aleph Pasuk, Hedek Aleph Pasuk, Kav Vav, and we had seen this first shot level, Pshatosh Mikra, understand what this pasuk really means. And of course, it's critical for us to understand what is the Bar Hashem over here. What is the Kedosh Baruch one and one? What does it mean to define a human being as the Elohim? That's the first point, as you well know. And then we had, our point was to see how this pasuk has been interpreted throughout the generations, throughout the ages, throughout different Mephadashim. So first we had seen, of course, Rabbi Greenberg's understanding of this point, and we won't go back into that. As well, we began to study what Rabbi Salavechik, of course, one of the Gidrulei Hadur, had understood about regarding this particular pasuk. He has almost, you might say, used pasuk as the linchpin of his entire book called Lonely Man of Faith. Here we had seen that Rabbi Salavechik quotes his pasuk, and he sees four essential distinctions between Bereshit Perek Al and Bereshit Perek Beh, whereas the Bible critics have seen this as the evidence of two different authors, but Salavechik says no. Simply enough, and it's a stroke of brilliance to say that this Torah now is referring to this Pasuk as two different aspects of the human being itself. The human being is created in the Melokim. What does that really mean? Well, for purposes of clarity, hopefully, has divided this learning, this study session, into two, this Pedic, into two different atoms. He calls it Adam 1 and Adam 2. And from Pedic Aleph, you have Adam 1, Pedic you have Adam 2. And in Pedic Aleph, with Adam 1, you find one personality emerging. And with Pedic Bet Adam 2, you find another personality emerging. And what do we have for Pedic Aleph? We have an Adam 1 who is concerned about dignity, who is concerned about grandeur, who is concerned about conquering the universe as it is. Pasuk says, We want you to conquer that which is out there. And Adam 1 lives a surface existence with the sole intent of trying to conquer and aggrandize himself. He establishes a relationship with Eve. And remember, all these, I'm summarizing now, these four differences. And Eve is created with Adam 1 at the same exact time. They have a very practical, pragmatic union. Each one has a role to play. And ultimately, they are out together to establish a community. There's a need for a community. But it's a very surface community. It's a community which is concerned with trying to serve the ends of Adam or Adam 1. That's Adam 1. Adam 2 raises the question, not how does this work, or what is the utilitarian, sorry? What? What? Okay. What is the utilitarian use of this cosmos out there, pragmatic use of it, and I want to serve my creator by imitating my creator as he creates, I want to create. Adam 2 raises that question, why am I here? What is all this about? He finds himself raising those philosophical, profound human questions that each person at one point or other in his life raises. And just to reread one of the most paradigmatic paragraphs here, which Adam to raises and sees, he senses something more, the mystery of being. Mystery of being is something that pursues him. Page 21, it gives a very good summary of what Adam to is all about. Adam to wants to know, why is it? What is it? Who is it? He wonders... Why did the world in its totality come into existence? Why is man confronted by the stupendous and indifferent order of things and events? He asks, what is the purpose of all this? What is the message that is embedded in organic and organic matter? 
And what does the great challenge reaching me from beyond the fringe of the universe as well, as for the depths of my tormented soul, mean? He senses something. He raises these very serious questions. He's trying to understand the message that is both internal as well as external. His heart asks these questions. His mind asks these questions. He looks out the universe and he sees it cold and unbending, unyielding. Whereas Adam 1 wants to conquer it and doesn't think too much about the why question whatsoever, Adam 2 wants to send more. And most significantly, Adam the second keeps on wondering, who is it he who trails me steadily, uninvited, unwanted, like an everlasting shadow, and vanishes into the recesses of the transcendence, the very instant I turn around to confront this numinous, awesome, and mysterious he? Who is he who fills Adam with awe and bliss, humility and a sense of gra- greatness, concurrently? Who is he to whom Adam clings in passion, all-consuming love, and from whom he flees in mortal fear and dread? Who is he who fascinates Adam irresistibly and at the same time rejects him irrevocably? Who is he who Adam experiences both as mysterium tremendum and is the most elementary, most oblivious, and most understandable truth? Who is he who is Dios revelatus, God who reveals, and Dios absconditus, God who hides himself simultaneously? Who is he whose life-giving and life-forming breath Adam fills constantly and who at the same time remains distant and remote from all. So Adam senses this presence. We don't really understand. For, for Adam too, obviously, God is not simply out there controlling. God is something much more significant, much more profound that trails him, that shadows him, that vanishes, that reveals the transcendence of transcendence and closes. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh is God's transcendence and Bukhaz Kebodo is as well that sense that Adam, ha- Adam too has. Again, Adam too is not distinct from Adam 1. There are two aspects or two parts of the total human persona. And again, by Salvechik's point over here is that all this emerges from the concept of Selim Elohim as portrayed in Bereshit, Terek Al, Pasuk, Kav, Vav. Kav, He, Kav, Vav, Kav, Zayn. That whole sequence of Pasukim gives him the understanding that all this is part and parcel of being human being. Selim means you're a human being. You're distinct from the animal kingdom. What does it be a human being? Human being means you're Adam 1, you're Adam 2. And of course, the question that we have asked for the last uh, five years is, is this Shittosh HaVikrar or is this Darash? Eli Benin is wedded to the notion of well, a nice Darash. A nice, fancy Darash, sophisticated, profound, but, but it's nothing more than a homiletical interpretation of what's in Bereshit itself. And of course, my refrain to that is, hold on, let's look at more, let's see. Because my question is, if it's only his homiletic interpretation, then it's of one level of significance. If this really is Devar Hashem, if this is really what is true, that the Torah is really telling us, this is really true about human personality, then of course it's to be taken much more seriously. Any Dinash, any rabbi throughout all Jewish history, is nice, can be very profound, and very sweet and gentle, but it's only Dinash. It's what you bring to the table. Dinash means what you bring to the table. It's how you eisegetically interpret the Pasuk. As opposed to Peshat, which is exegetically what's in the Pasuk itself. Is all of this the Pasuk or implied in the Pasuk? Or implied in the Pasuk. Obviously, if you understand the word Peshat to mean that this is simply what's word for word, literally there, then that's not what we'll hear. He obviously, obviously added words to the text. But Peshat, he understands to mean, and we've seen the word Peshat means different things to different Mepharashim, but he understands the word Peshat, what's the truth of that Pasuk? What is really there, beyond the surface level? Not to be meant literally, but what is the truth of the Pasuk of Peshat really means? Right? What's the Peshat of Yad HaZakah? It means, quite literally, the outstretched, powerful arm of God. 
That's the shot of that Is that the of Pasuk? The literal understanding? What is it? It's a symbol for God's overwhelming, extraordinary power and concern with the human being to save the human being. So the implications of Pasuk could be viewed as part and parcel of the word Pashat as well. Now, this Torah does not only operate on its literal level, God forbid, I would want to do that, but rather, Torah gives us depths of meaning which is part and parcel of its original intent. Pashat means, perhaps, not only what the Pasuk literally says, but more fundamentally, what the Pasuk implies, what the Pasuk really means. In other words, can you extrapolate from this Pasuk that's what emerged from this Pasuk, all that's in that text? Right? And of course, again, this question is something that can be raised with everything that you read. If you read, uh, let's say, Shakespeare, the have deal, is Shakespeare's line over here, and we interpret it a certain way. Is that what's really there? We're interpreting it to be other than what he really intended. For example, in a very controversial, perhaps, um, example, he uses the phrase the pound of flesh in Merchant of Venice to describe Shylock, who was there, which therefore characterized him as anti-Semite. Yes, it looks like anti-Semitic statement. It's right there in front of us. That's what it really means. But perhaps he didn't really intend that at all. It might have been in, in 17th, 16th century England. That's a phrase that was characteristically in use about Jewish people. And it's sort of even describing um, an article which says A is A. It doesn't necessarily mean anti-Semitic. It might simply just be the, a, 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 a means or method of description of a human being. Not necessarily anti-Semitic. His intent may not have been anti-Semitic. He doesn't have an anti-Semitic bone in his entire body. And so it's the way that you read a pasu, that, that you read his play. He's portraying reality. Portraying reality doesn't necessarily mean that you're anti-Semitic, if that's a description of what people really believe or thought or whatever. So interpretation and Shantaraj comes about with regard to every form of literature and everything that you're going to read. Now, so that's the question that we want to keep on the table. And admittedly, sometimes Shantaraj's line is very thin, sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes it's very thin, right? And um, interesting question about yesterday's Vatorah, Dirashah, was the notion about the building blocks of the Jewish nation that compassion is part and parcel of the Jewish people? To give you one word summary, is that Pshat Dirash? Where's Mark Black? What did you think it was? I knew he was wondering. And he came to the conclusion that it was Pshat, no doubt. And even this other further notion of calling, using the word Rahman and Rehem to be. How did I say it? Oh, so you, missed, so, you, so you can't decide the whole entire speech? No, if you didn't work the whole speech. I thought you were the whole speech. Oh, no, so you could, No, that, that, was third, that, was, that was the third or fourth point of it. Okay, but that's the backdrop you mean. Okay, the backdrop, right. Making the point that Rahman and Rahim share in common the root womb, and therefore compassion, woman, intrinsic, natural, that is the shot of that word. But you'll notice that in the entire chapter, uh, or the entire Shemot, there's not one word that has the word, the word Rahman is not there. But I'm saying that's the building of the Jewish nation. And I wrote my proof to it. But you have it. Why the Jewish people have serv- serv- servitude? Because they have to learn compassion. But it doesn't say that anyplace. I'm interpreting that. Was that my interpretation? Or was it evident from the first opening chapters of the, of the book of Shemot? Is that why we served? If in fact that's why we served, that's shot of that period of enslavement. Am I reading into it? Or is it really there? So I would suggest, I think, that it's really there. Why not, how can I prove it? I proved it by quoting first Devarim, which has two halachot. One is, Lord Semishpat, don't pervert justice. Why not? You were a slave in Egypt, associating the compassion of the field for a gift of Almanah, which is prominent in those two contexts, correct? And therefore, compassion of the field for those 
unprotected member of society is related, rooted in your experience of servitude in Egypt. And also, when you harvest your field, your olives and your karmecha and your vineyard, leave some. Leave some food for the poor person. Feel for that poor person. You know what it's like. Why? You remember you were a slave in Egypt. So that pasuk, those tied to Al-Khot, which are clearly issues of compassion for the unprotected member of society, for the downtrodden, with Yitzhak Mitzrayim. I can find ten other proofs wow, of that. that. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not sure that's compassion. Oh, in Devari, not in Shemot. Okay, that might be compassion. And there it's related also to Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So you're right. I can find ten other examples. They say overrelated to Mitzvah that we would ordinarily characterize as compassion. So we have this, I have this elaborate scenario that I've created, which you missed most of. Sorry. The last scenario, according to two examples of Halakhor over there, using the Talmud, in that context, using the Hebrew language, all that showing, explaining why you had servitude. Now, is that Peshat or Zanash? It's a very significant question. And I'm arguing it's Peshat. The building block of Jewish nation is you have to experience servitude in order for you to learn compassion. I'm not worried about I'm not worried about God's compassion. I'm not God's compassion. I'm, I'm Bill Gates. I'm worth sixty billion dollars. I want to teach my children about life. I want to teach them about how to be a human being, not to be insensitive to the downtrodden. So I give them two dollars on the street and go out. You're out for two weeks. You have to go and survive on your own. I want you to feel what it's like to be hungry. I want you to like to be subject to the elements. I want you not to have a nice heated car uh, run, uh, driven by a chauffeur wherever you go. The peace court, okay, for the rich and wealthy. So, uh, is, that, uh, so is, is that a pshaw dirash? So, again, I'm sorry, nobody was here, actually. I'm asking for but nobody comes to mind. So, I'm, I believe it's pshat of why the pshutoshim pshat. Although the word compassion does not appear in all that narrative. I think I can make a very good case for that. So same question, Shat and Darash. Joseph, you had a question. What is? That's another question. Not a paradox. It's clear. It's Shat or Darash. And sometimes a thin line. Yes, that's true. No, no, that's true. Sometimes it's clear to resolve. Sometimes the word there that. Obviously, pshat means door. That's easy. Pshat, which means pshat is not intense. We've got to have an outstretched arm. When Torah says, I didn't get up to Allah Shamaim, pshat of that. What does that pshat of that word mean? You have cities that are fortified unto the heavens. That's, a, that's more difficult. You're right. That's a very difficult issue to, to try to figure out. It doesn't mean literally nobody built a city unto the Shamaim. It doesn't mean literally. Of course not. So, what's pshat of that? That's a little more problematic. Some issues are clear, some issues are not clear. Lord Tegno means don't steal. Lord, let the sacraments don't kill. That's clear. That's pshat is pshat kemashma'ah, as she would say. Pshat kemashma'ah. It's clear. What it says, what it means. 
It's what you get, right? I don't want to pursue this because I really want to go over here to the air. This is our theoretical substructure that we've discussed for the last two or three years. So Rabbi Soledadjik has this entire elaborate edifice of what he means all about that I'm arguing is Shetoshel Mikra. Although, interesting, it's the first time in human history that any person has ever explained this pasuk in this particular fashion. So the Peshat has been hidden from us for 3,000 years. It's my argument. And again, you have to see, is this what it means to be a human being? Is this the Peshat of this pasuk? Right? I, I, find, I find myself greatly attracted to this as the Peshat Mikra rather than seeing it simply as a nice dirash. Homiletical. Nice dirash. Okay. No. Insights. Okay, correct. Good. So this is this. Correct. Good. But are they reading into it, or are they extrapolating its message out from it? I'm fine over here. That's the question. Is this really what's here? Is this really what's it? That's what shot means. What's really here? The intent. The intent of the author. Right. No. I wrote something over this point. I wrote over here. Don't steal. But that way. How can the intent of an order change? Well, because Hashem wrote it, not a person. Intent can change. He knew the Rav was going to read it. Right. Right. He wanted it to and happen. He knew the Rav's life. And he, uh, cop out. No, you're wrong. Cop out. But we're not going to pursue this right now. That's, okay. a, that's a more theoretical question. That's, that's, a, that's, that's an unusual view of, of intent changing. Shakespeare wrote the Merchant of Venice that he intended to be anti Semitic. We could prove it was not anti Semitic. Here's a line. It looks at and smells like anti-Semitism, but it was not anti-Semitic. There's not just a bone in his body. What was his intent? It's not, it was not to be anti-Semitic. And that has been resolved. I know, I know, I know. I'm old. I know. I knew he'd catch me on that one. I know. I'm just trying to use this as an example. Correct. Okay, you're right. But assuming it were resolved, we found this ancient manuscript last week. What's that book that Moshe made me read on ancient manuscript being found? Something about prophecy? You're going to read a book. Oh, yeah, Shakespeare yeah. is mortal. Hashem is divine. I'm sure one of those. No, no. It's a great book. That's it. Thank you. So we find it. We find a very nice book, manuscript. That he was not. He loved the Jews. So what does the line mean? What's, what was the intent? Is that what, well, proof is not anti-Semitic. And if that's the case, okay, what's the Peshat of that Pasuk? It's not to be anti-Semitic. Okay, so that's also. And we'll, Hashem is a divine witness could have different intents for different generations. Yeah, but... He could have wrote it that way that it could have... And, and Rabbi Sobolevich's time, he came up with this. Then he'd give out a new book. I think so. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not happy. I'm, I'm a little. Living, living Torah. I'm. I'm, I'm going to say right now. We agree with that statement. So don't use that catchphrase. We yeah, agree with that. Motherhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. The point is that Hashem, with an infinite wisdom, meant it to mean this at this time and that at that time. That's all I'm saying. I'm, hold on. I'm. I, I'm jarred by Judah's point. That's a nice alliteration. I am jarred by Judah's point. Pretty good. Right? Correct. And wait, wait, wait. So, and I would want to absorb it. I need a little time for this. Changing intent of Hashem. We ought to agree. We ought, I mean, we're, we're saying, he's saying something that, that, that we have to really explore another point. Let's go to this over here now. Now, the other second article that I gave you was, is going to share the light on this. And I'd like to look at it for a moment over here. Second article number two. Which is going to show... This is, of course, written at a different time. What page is it, by the way? This page 60. Thank you. And of course, we want to be all aware that this particular book, the Conspectus, was put together. Oh, they're sharing with. No, we're sharing. We have extra people that come from Brooklyn, just drop in from Meashamayim. They drop in from Meashamayim, and uh, that's no Meashamayim. They shot it. They dropped it from the heavens. I'm sorry. 
Are you describing this? Not good enough. I don't buy that. I want more. Okay. This, again, is a conspectus. When Rabbi Soledic's written word was few and far between, we had summarized all of his articles and all of his shiurim, all of his shiurim, actually, and proudly enough, I was one of the editors of this, so I'm very happy. I told you that before? Did you know you were there? See, I'm on the editorial page. Can't find it, right. It's, not a print. it's a wonderful work. There was one printing and they never... <laughs> 5,000 was sold out in two weeks. And you what spent all that money on... 5,000... We weren't allowed, because he hit the roof when he found out that we did this. He, he, oh, he came to me. I was in the shoe at the time. I want to speak to you after Shi'ur. I don't have to tell you the story. This is a great story. You have a minute. You have a minute? Yeah, a minute. I think you always do. You always Eli never does. <laughs> Eli's telling us that. He came, he called me. I want to see you after Shi'ur. Come to my apartment. Oh, my God. Come to, I, I can tell you that if you told me uh, Godzilla was there, <laughs> that I would be more afraid because it was published. And, of course, in September, we decided to do this. He had, um, okay, he said, it's fine. You, you know, there's no problem. I understand you could, you could do this. And, uh, I have one of the original prints of this picture, by the way, in my house. It's a beautiful picture of who he is. It's really a very special. And um, so I said, we, so he said, yes, do it. So we all took his we all summarized them, we all handed them. And I summarized this particular one on dual acid Jewish morality. Given at Rutgers in 73, I was there, and I summarized it. And this is my summary of both things. And um, so I go to the apartment, I asked the, the, the I, was al- I wanted to go with somebody else. No, no, let's go over Sitting there. So he says to me, you've wronged me, you've done this, you've done this, that we... So I said, first of all, so at the end, after a 20-minute harangue, which was really very difficult, at five minutes, seemed like two hours, but five I said, Rabbi, first of all, we had asked permission for this. We didn't do this, we didn't do pine, we did this, this. I know, I know you did, I know you did, but you wronged me. So then he said, and then he said, um, I said, second of all, I'm doing Teshuvah. If I did wrong you, I don't want to be guilty of this, I did Teshuvah. And I said, there's a great need for this, because what do you want us to read of Jewish thinking? There was nothing that he had written at that point, in, seven, in the early, mid-70s. And I said, there's a great need for this, because there's nothing out there. Do you want me to read tradition? Do you want me to read Judaism? Do you want me to read... We're talking about saving the Shema. We're talking about the depth of thought, and you, you're the most profound Jewish thinker, so we, we, need to, we, need, we need to do this. And then I said, third of all, my doing Teshuvah, and as opposed to the way that the Rav had expo- explained, the Rav explained, Rav explained, Rav explained the um, famous Teshuvah, famous Gemara, which talks about Ishab ben Avuyan, Aher, where he's traveled to Rabimi Er, right? And they come to Tehom Shabbat. And Ishab ben Avuyan, the famous heretic of Tamir Times, as a driven leaf, that's the book that was written about, this is worth reading, says to Rabimi Er, Hazor Becha, go back, you're up to Tehom Shabbat. So Rabimi Er tells him, Hazor Becha, meaning do Teshuvah. Ishab ben Avuyan answers and says, in Salimun Hagiga, says, Kashmut Fina Pargod, I heard the other side of the curtain, the Pasuk in Hoshea, Shuvani Shuvavim, Right, that's what Elisha says. That I'm not allowed, I cannot do Teshuvah. One person can never do Teshuvah. What's well, so take on that is that he lied. He lied. Why did he lie? lie? It's an issue called, one might say, self-deception. He deceived himself thinking that he could never do Teshuvah. But of course, Teshuvah is always open to everybody. So the rabbi, so at that point, according to this whole time, sorry, Rabbi Sulejic chuckled. You're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> so I used his own teaching again, you know, in that way. He says, okay, it's okay. So I felt um, exonerated from this particular situation. I walked out sweating. <laughs> I survived. <laughs> it was sort of like lion, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, right? That's how I felt at that point. So we did this, and it was uh, just a wonderful work that we thought at that time. And of course, he was right that he said, I'm planning on publishing all my works. Yeah, who's he kidding? He didn't publish any. He has thousands of um, tapes and manuscripts that he never published. But a, few, a lot more came out, in, certainly since he's passed away. Last book was with Joel Lovasky, was putting out a book on his on family redeemed. It's called. They put together works of his that have not been published before, and they're wonderful works. And there's just so much depth to all this 
Now, when you read this, everything else is second best. You know, and, and, and um, it was very interesting. My first year here, the summer I came, Manny Hanway, who we love, came to me and says, I want you to hear some great takes. Great takes. I says, Manny, what are you after? You have to hear the other. So we had showed, he had, with all due respect, he had, um, I said to Manny, I've been studying for the last, you know, five years, six, whatever it was. Soloveitchik was a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't even pronounce his name, he tells me. I can't even pronounce his name. Just hear this. So I ended up, he gave me tapes, uh, you know, from Rabbi Weinberg, Eshet Torah, Torah, on pursuit of happiness, on Pirkei Avot. So I listened to the first tape or two. Now, now what do I do? You know, it's very nice, it's human, it's compassion, it's a very, very nice series of tapes. But you see the difference between depth and profundity and another approach, called another approach. So, in this particular essay, which I happen to have put together, Look at the first lines. Really, the first lines and the last lines, which is going to reflect. I'm sorry that you don't have a copy for everybody. That's going to reflect. No, I on Friday. Here, according to Judaism, man is a dialectical being who is torn by conflict. Read a subject over here of Adam one, Adam two, right? And who is in a state of continual ontological tension and perplexity. That's a great line. Now, it was not my line. Obviously, I'm quoting. That was not my line. I would never write this 30 years ago. Even now, I wouldn't write this way. But it's what he said. It is this tension in man that ultimately results in man's creative gesture and is therefore responsible for man's greatness and God's election as man as a charismatic figure. Charismatic figure. This is Sinema Lokim. You created Sinema Lokim and all this is because you have this inherent tension between Adam 1 and Adam 2, therefore you are created. Therefore, you are a human being. What distinguishes you between the animal kingdom is the fact that you can create. But this tension in the very nature of man is unreconcilable. Unlike the Hegelian dialectic of thesis, antithesis, and new synthesis, the thesis antithesis, antithesis means the opposite, results in a new synthesis. That's Hegelian's famous dialectic and how history proceeds along its merry way. Man is unreconcilable. Only God knows how to reconcile the inherent tension within man. We do not. Thus, the living reality of man is a tragic reality. Man is continually involved in a constant tension of thesis and negation. There is no new synthesis and no sound in Judaism as there is no as there is in Hegelian dialect. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. It's extraordinary. I use this next paragraph. I remember it from this is what thirty years ago, and I remember him saying it. I remember it just so clearly. I've used it many times. So Tehillim, the psalmist will express this notion of mathematical nature when he said, I've said in my haste, every man is a liar. So Rabbi Sof says. What kind of lie is this? The political lie? Is every man guilty of the political lie? The social lie? What kind of lie is it every single man guilty of? It's a brilliant issue, brilliant question. I was a shiver about um, two months ago. We're in Taylim, you know, and, and we're reading this perfectly. So, do you mind if I ask the rabbi who was that? Do you mind if I raise this question? Raise a question, whatever you want. It was a rabbi from the Kolel, which he walked out. And I finished, because he didn't get him. He didn't see it. I said, well, what does Pasuk mean? I said in my haste, call Adam, every single person, I quoted this, every man, every, every political, what kind of lie is it? And it led to a wonderful 40-minute discussion about, about the political lie, the social lie, all this over here. And then, explaining what he explains over here. I said, one man asks, what kind of lie was talking about? What kind of lies, what are all men continually guilty of? It, it is not an immoral lie, as many would think. Rather, it's a moral lie. A lie that involves the very essence of man a lie that man self that tells himself self-deception right man lies because he's involved in a thicket of antinomies and dichotomies contradictions 
self-contradiction. Because of the contradiction of the being, man must swing between two poles of affirmation and negation. Is it fine with both or none? The lies draw of human creativity. Right? This sense of discomfort, of not at home with myself. Man is both at home in the universe and not at home in the universe. In another departure from this, he shot the Nashman. Hold on to this one. Right? You have the Pasuk, the Yitzhi Hashem Malkimadan. Adam and Afar, Perek Bet. The Yitz has two Yuds. She don't have one Yud. Why is that two Yuds? So Rashi has two, one statement, he has the One is that, called out Tor. He gathered dust from all the universe and he made Adam. Right? The other is, he took dirt only from the Mizbeah to find Teshuvah. So as you said, that both of these are true. Man is both a universal being out to conquer the world but also he needs a place to be rooted in, to come home to, that he wants to come back to his people, to his place. This is where I'm from. This is my community. This is where I need to be. He's buried in that place where he always feels a sense of comfort. So man has that tension. He's both a traveler to the stars as well as somebody who needs to, to be rooted in a certain place. Both are true of man. That's what Salem Kim is all about. And this tension is a res- is results in the creative tension of trying to resolve it. You you're, you are your creator, not simply because you create, imitate da, not because you simply create, but rather you're imitating your creator because you're a result of this tension, which creates tension. And from a salvation, interestingly enough, again also just reading how Rav Shach condemns him and criticizes him for all this that he's writing over here, it should be burned, it should be thrown out. How, how did Rabbi Zerach allow him to write this? He writes in his letters, Rav Shach, and I have it, Xerox. And um, he's very upset about this whole entire approach to explain this. And Rav Shach says, you could only quote that which others quoted. You could only quote Ashi and his... Uh, was there was essence in Isha Halacha, chapter, it's uh, page 91, or chapter, I forget, 5 or 6, page 91, 92, where the essence of the Tamil Hacham is what? Hidush, creativity. To simply quote Rashi for you and read Parashav Rashi and that's not Talmud Torah. Talmud Torah is creation. Hidush, Koach Hidush. To create a new idea in Torah and add to that link on the chain of Jesus, that's what it's all about to be Tamil Hacham, not simply to quote other sources. So it's these two, Rakshach of Pornovich and Rakshach, are diametrically opposed in this area. Whereas the essence of what is to create, the Hedush, and of course Rosh is known for creation. And all this we read is all creation. It's all creativity. It's all new. Nobody ever wrote this way. One second. Nobody ever wrote this way ever. On the one hand, Rosh is exactly the opposite. Read Rashi, read Ramban, and that's, that's your Devar Torah. That's what it's all about. It's just simply what they said is important, not what you say is important. Two different approaches to what Judaism is all about. This you'll find nowhere else in Jewish thought in this way. But again, we can look at Harambam and others who did in fact engage in creation. Yeah, I'm sorry, Josh. Okay, so this is human uh, creativity. Now, of course, the po- man's dialectical can have because of two homogeneous morality. It's a brilliant point. If man's dialectical, he can have because of two homogeneous morality, his morality must be dialectical in the very beginning. Halakhai has formulated such a dialectical morality based on the split between the same nature of man. Nature of man. Selim Man is a human being. Selim So the nature of man, so all I'm saying right now is his shot on Selim Elohim. His understanding of this, that this is what's in the text itself. He's not creating, he's not homileticizing, it's not homiletics, it's not dirasha. You're not going to build this entire edifice based on a dirasha that you're going to say. And he knew the difference between shot So I'm arguing that he thought this was pshat. He thought this is what's in the pasuk itself that he's, he's bringing out. Now, it may, it may be wrong about it, it may not be divine intent then. 
I'm sure that uh, an Adam HaRishon did not know the Hege- that Hegelian dialectic. But on the other hand, this is what he is saying is in the Pasuk, and, and, and I think it's in the Pasuk. It doesn't have to be either for Shad or Drasha. It could be actually uh, emphasis uh, from one and the other, different kind of emphasis. Okay, it's you may want to look at let's, let's finish and see if we want to come to, our, to one or the other, or to your point. Hold on for one minute. And then he says over here, man, God for men of just the ground, Rashi in the name of Zbadash, his suit of protection. Man was created from the dust of the ground of all corners of the earth, which he said. Man was created from the dust of the one place in the altar which was built. The first occasion for the man is a cosmic being. As such, he is not a stranger. Not a stranger anywhere in the universe. He is a son of citizen of all parts of even the distant and unknown. Man is a cosmic being in a threefold manner. Right? First, it was intellectual involvement in the cosmos. Man's intellectual curiosity is of cosmic, cosmic universal significance. And this applies to those things that are close as well as those far removed, millions of light years away. Indeed, the very remoteness magnifies his curiosity. Man wishes to know. This is, this is Adam 1. This is Adam, right? Adam 1. You see this clearly. Here. Man wishes to know about the universe. He wishes to solve all the mysteries of the Creator. But he cannot, therefore, he remains a restless being. This cosmic curiosity in the part of man borders on arrogance. Man wishes to, know, to own the universe, though the universe belongs to God. God, however, has granted man partial ownership to whomever he has in the setting of the universe, kept it with such an individual. This is a great summary. If I had written this, I want to raise the salary. Do you think he really believed that Tashi meant this? No. No, he's only quoting... No, no. No, 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 no. Because they, she's quoting... This is what she says in this Pasuk. This is what she says in this Pasuk. That's all. No, I understand that. But it fits no. very well. He's saying, okay, I'm going to take this Tashi because it happens to fit well. No, it doesn't fit well. No, he's what the Midrash says this. She's quoting the Midrash. But yet it Right, and then he goes on to say the first part is this and the mm-hmm. Barakhir yeah. he's going to get to in a second right 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 but he doesn't really mean that Rashi believes of course that. absolutely not and Rashi doesn't even know Kepler was 400 years earlier or, or this thought that he's bringing down not absolutely agreed okay. he's just saying I'm going to grab this quotes, because no, I have no, no, it no 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 not a quote the has two years and this is the whole story over here and he's saying this, this, is what this, this is what these two Midrashim really mean in other words when you say God created God, God took dust from all the whole earth and made Adam what was the Midrash intent over here? That's the, your real question. Yes. Uh, that's your real question. So the Midrash means... The Midrash. Right, exactly. Right. That's the next step. Very good. Excellent exactly. point. That's wonderful. That, that took three years to get to that point in, in, in earlier classes. What's the Peshat of that Midrash? Did the Midrash really intend this? Did the rabbis of the Midrash, who were extraordinary personalities, understand that when it says that... Remember, the rabbis made up this point. It's Vayitzeh, W, and all that, which means... First of all, Hashem took dust from all the earth. What do they mean by that? What, what do they mean? What do they intend by that? Indeed, it may be so that they meant that man, not formulated this word, cosmos and millions of light years, but they meant that man is a, perhaps, a universal being. Call that. Let's finish and see if it fits in. <coughs> this is this, the written word over here. Again, this is only my summary of what he said, but this is really what he said. I, I didn't deviate. This is what he, it's not me writing. The second, na- second man in which man is a cosmic being is man's desire to, to not only be intellectually but experientially involved in the universe. Man wants to be everywhere and experience everything. Man loves the vastness and limitness of the universe. He wants to explore and visit the actual universe. Man, bored by the routine and familiar, desires the, the, the aesthetic experience of exploring all that is unknown. Man is thirdly a cosmic being, all Selim rooted, and this is all Adam 1. A cosmic being, because of his mobility, he can detach himself from the surrounding and move forward from home. Man is not rooted being tied to his homeland. Rather, he's being continually transcending the environment. A being who can and does move because of his cosmic curiosity. Right? 
Thus goes as a questioner and a searcher. For vast, this is Adam 1, and limitless is in every year. He's mesmerized by the infinite, infinite opportunities, and therefore at times forgets that he is finite. And for that, and for the finite to reach out to infinity is the best of foolhardy endeavor. That's Rabbi Selechik's words. Right? Good. Second interpretation, don't go away, is that man is not a cosmic being at all. This is only figment of human fantasy. This is Adam 2 now, right? Man is rooted, is a rooted being. The Creator having taken dust from a single spot, assigned man a single spot. Man has touched the soil of his inheritance. When torn away, he becomes a na'vanad. Na'vanad, a restless vagabond, dislocated physically and as well spiritually. Homelessness and exile are a rest, are a curse for a man who is trying to find his origins. For man, the ultimate quest is to find out the link between himself and some mysterious source. That's Adam too. Though man may climb to the stars to conquer infinity, eventually he would return home. If not during his lifetime, because he's too busy, then that is the word, then in death he would turn to his source. Torah will make Torah well makes this point. right? Burial is thus a means to return to man's origin. Each man was created from the dust from one spot and he will eventually return to that spot. It is that quest for his origin that drives men on. Be it a spot in a geographic sense or a spiritual sense. Every Jew is longing and questing for his origin. We therefore have faith that every Jew will, will embrace Judaism because every Jew has a desire to return to his origin. Right? All this we have. Correct? Now, turn the page. Can we do this for homework? And it's point number two. Look at page 62, the last two lines. 62? Yes. Last two paragraphs. You with me? Yeah. Okay. Modern man, however, is frustrated and perplexed. He tries always to be victorious. He's Adam 1. He's exclusively committed to the morality of victory, which he spoke about above. Man must realize that he must lose, that he must be defeated at certain times. Perfect is denied to man. Defeat for man is built into the very structure of his creation. Thus, morality based only on victory is an insufficient ethic. This therefore requires a man to accept defeat in all areas at certain times. He must engage at times in self-defeat and self-control. Man must withdraw even at times when victory means most to him. Here is when it is absolutely necessary for man to win. He must lose. And it was required. Now, this is what I said last time also. Abraham was required to give up his most precious son, Isaac, because this son meant so much to Abraham. God instructed him to engage in self-defeating action to give up his only son. Moses well was denied what he most wanted. I was at to see the land. God told Moses to retreat and not cross the Jordan River. Within Judaism, nothing has, has required as much self-withdrawal and sensitive area of the love relationship between man and woman. Judaism looked upon sex as evil, something intrinsically bad, but sex, because of its hypnotic and orgiastic effect, do you believe that I quote this every class that I give to the couples? That sex is orgiastic and all that. I quote all this line. Man becomes brutal and ugly. It must may, be, maybe. may become, right. Thank you. It must be purged of his vulgarity. How do you raise sex to a higher human level? How do you endow it with dignity? This is discipline. We used the word discipline last time. This can be accomplished only through withdrawal and self-defeat. Man following strict halakhic principles must abstain from sexual restraint for a period of eight to eight month. In this area, in all areas of self-defeat and withdrawal are redeeming, are redeeming and effective. Adam too looks for redemption. Redemption is rooted in, in discipline. When you're able to defeat and not do what you intrinsically want most, to eat the uh, McDonald's <coughs> pizza, or to engage in inappropriate sex when it's not appropriate, that discipline, that self-control, raises you to a higher level. And it becomes redeemed, which is what Adam too really wants, and effective. Thus, man is to engage in self-defeat at the instant he realizes that victory is assured. When the last battle is won, at the last boundary, man is told to stop and withdraw. You've won everything at this point. Right? Night of your honeymoon and everything else like that. And she says, I've seen a Shoshana today. I've seen a rose in the field. What does she mean by that? 
Shnida, right? She's a little suck of blood. You have to withdraw at that point. So it's victory. I need this. I want this. A redeeming act would be to say, just like, no, I'm saying no to myself. My passion is now lit. I want to do this. No, you are now self withdrawing. No, no, no. I use that metaphorically. No, 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 no. If he, that's a different issue. If he assents to this, he is later told to move on. What, what he gave up to him, Abraham listened, and after Agadai's Haq, he was told to resume his march. Moses, however, was less fortunate. He listened and withdrew, but only allowed to see the land and not enter. Thus, the Jew is required to march boldly on to victory, but he must retreat and withdraw just as victory is assumed, as he may resume his march forward. Okay, so that's Adam 1 and Adam 2. So is this not a very nice portrayal of what Adam 1 and Adam 2 is really all about? Right, so this is all about. So again, this is, and this was written 10, 15 years apart, 20 years apart. That's his reading of Bereshit Al Kavav. Okay, so let me just start now a little bit, at least page 43. And we can find other sources as well, you know, that is going to say this is his understanding of what Sinem Kim is really all about. So now Adam 1 forms a, a partnership with Eve, pragmatic union. Adam 1 forms a community, a community that's pragmatic. It's not a service community. Adam 1 is with dignity. And dignity needs a social context, correct? Good to see you. Adam, uh, we have five more minutes. Adam, Adam one, Adam one is concerned with surface personality, with dignity. Sorry, that's Adam one, and therefore he needs a social environment. He's a social being. Adam two needs none of that. He's a lonely man of faith. Adam two, and he creates a relationship which is of two lonely people finding each other. Adam and Eve find each other. We look at page 37, and defeated must Adam the second field, the race he scores his greatest success. The discovery of his humanity, his identity, the iron which he attains as a result of his untransferred for a redeemed secure existence, with his own antithesis to the fore. Antithesis, right? Same word to use. The awareness of his exclusiveness and ontological incompatibility with any other being. He goes all this and he finally finds Eve, and they, they, if they're not living a surface existence, to go through all this, he finds Eve and he lives a in-depth existence with his spouse. Now again, one could live with one spouse as surface existence, pragmatic union. You bake the bread and I make the bread and it becomes a very surface existence, right? Or it can be two lonely souls finding each other. We discussed even psychologically that you're not ready to marry, to get married, unless you're in a certain community that's married when you're 17 no matter what you, you feel, right? That's a certain community. But when you have, first you're very dependent on your parents then you go to the stage of independence and only at that point when you're mature and you feel a sense of interdependence you need to be with somebody else and then that person answers that sense of loneliness you really feel lonely when you're 22 23 24 when I was in, in, in Rabbi Shalom as 23 24 25 who needed Emily <laughs> who, I didn't need anything I was going out we had known each other at 22 I didn't need to get married there was no need I was engrossed I was learning I was PhD I was all that stuff it was wonderful I didn't need to get married at a certain point I felt a need to get married I'm 26 now and I finished studying with him, and I was now in my PhD program full time, and that wasn't fulfilling that inner search for interdependence, wanting to share one's life with someone else. So that is a different kind of marriage, obviously, it's a different kind of search and 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 result. So that's what Adam two is really all about. Not to say that I'm Adam two, I didn't mean to imply that I'm not Adam two, but partially maybe. But that is what Adam two is about. Eve feels a need of to fill that loneliness that Adam one felt, and vice versa. Therefore, Bereshit Perek Bet is about what? Be'adam lo matah Isaac kenegdo. He didn't find anybody. 
Again, this is a pshat. He didn't find anybody. And he went and named all the other animals. He went and named all the other animals. And then he still didn't find anybody. He needs someone to share his lonely with, loneliness with. And at the end, what did he do? He, Hashem makes Eve as part of him. As opposed to Beshi Tedek Aleph, where what happens? They both create at the same time. One helps the other. We're in this together. It's a pragmatic union. This is very different. Now, but that's not the whole story yet. The whole story needs one more element, which is the, which you had for homework to read. At this point, the main section between the natural community of Adam, the first, natural community, we socialize, we need to socialize, and the common community of Adam, second, is, becomes clear. The first is a community of interests. Pragmatic. I need you to supply me with my needs. Forged by the indomitable desire for success, and consisting of a terms of two gr- grammatical personalities, the I and the thou, collaborate in order to further their interests. All pragmatic, right? A new compound joining the community seems to be anonymous he, it turns into an old communal thou. The second is community of commitments. This is Adam too now. Born in distress and defeat. Because who really are you? You're one little person in the universe. You're alone in the universe. And you need somebody else to share that loneliness with. And if he, and comprises three partners. I, thou, and he, and Hashem, and God. God is the ultimate redemption for that person who seeks out another partner. The he in whom, capital H, in whom all being is rooted, and whom everything finds its rehabilitation, and redemption. That's the key for Adam too, right? Adam the first is the first met the female all by himself, while Adam the second was introduced to Eve by Hashem, by God, who summoned Adam to join even the essential community, mild by sacrificial action. You have this, page sixty, page um, forty-four. <coughs> I did zero. I said. and suffering and he and who himself Hashem himself becomes a partner in this community what Pasuk rings right now right we say it all the time God is with us your suffering God is with us one more paragraph God is never outside the common community he joins man shares in the common existence finitude infinity temporality and eternity creator and creator come involved in the same community they bind themselves together in unitive existence Right? Oh, look, he says it down here, but I didn't know he says it down here. The whole, the footnote, the whole concept of an officer that with him in trouble, considered with the perspective of the community, which involves God and the destiny of his fellow members. It's an astounding formulation of what Hashem and human beings are all about. His fellow, in that phrase, God and the destiny of his fellow members. It's, that's the covenantal community he speaks about. Sorry? Capital H. Capital H, correct. Okay, we will continue on.